0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: We do become exhausted from the messaging and we get fatigued, and it's hard to know what is true and important versus what is the spin. Hello, everyone, and welcome
0: to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, I speak with Bill Harrod. He's the CTO of the Federal Division of Mobile Iron. And we're going to be talking about election disinformation campaigns. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump into some stories here. I'll kick things off for us this week. This is a story from ZDNet written by Catalin Simpanyu for Zero Day. And its titled Bitcoin Wallet Update Trick has netted criminals more than twenty two million dollars. Joe, have you have you ever had any cryptocurrency? Have, do you have? Oh yes, you, have you dabbled? I have some cryptocurrency. I have dabbled. Yes, I have not yet dipped my toe in the cryptocurrency world. Although I know plenty of folks who have.
2: One of my biggest regrets in life is when Bitcoin was four bucks. I said I should buy some of that, and I didn't. And then when Bitcoin went up to twenty five bucks, I was like. Maybe I should have bought it at four bucks and maybe I should still buy some at 25 bucks. Nah, 25 bucks, that's probably as high as it's going to go.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember there was, for a while, there was a website that tracked um, if you had purchased Apple stock instead of Apple hardware, how you would have made out, you know, because back in the 90s, Apple had a $3,000. A laptop computer that was a real, just a, a real dog. And right. if you'd purchased Apple stock back then, you know the the millions of dollars you have now <laughs> instead of this this dog of a laptop, you know that's completely obsolete. But anyway, we digress. This story yes. is about some cyber criminal gangs who have stolen uh, again more than twenty two million dollars um, from users of the Electrum wallet app. Ah. Okay, now the Electrum Wallet app, I think, is a lightweight wallet that does not keep a
2: full copy of the Bitcoin blockchain on it. So you can just install it and then use it to generate your private and public keys, but you don't have to actually download the entire blockchain, which is
0: a very large amount of data these days. I'll bet. (laughs) I'll bet. So it seems like what's happening is that these bad guys are taking advantage of... I suppose what was a feature in the Electrum wallet, which was that it was a network of servers. So they called that Electrum X. I guess it was a a decentralized nature of Electrum, uh, which was a feature. But the bad guys have been able to take advantage of that because Mm. you don't have to be part of the Electrum organization to run an Electrum server. Hmm. So, the, if you could spin up your own Electrum server, put it on the Electrum network, let's call it that. For And I'm probably misusing the, the term, so I apologize in advance for those who are banging their head against their desk as I try to explain this. The result is that bad guys could spin up their own server, and when people would happen upon this server, they would ping the user with a security update request. Ah. So you're a user of Electrum, you've fired up your version of the Electrum software, it reaches out to servers, and it happens upon one of these servers that is being run by the bad guys. And the bad guys see that you've logged on, and they pop up, and they, it's a message that says, security update required. Right. In order to do the thing you want to do with your cryptocurrency, you must update your security software. And uh, this is a good thing. We're looking out for your, for your interests, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mandatory... It, that's, yeah. of course, what it says. Right. And so they require you to download some software. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, well, this seems reasonable. Everything seems on the up and up. I'm, I'm using my Electrum software. I've hit an Electrum server, so they're uh, requesting me to download an update to the Electrum software. And so you go and you do that, and of course the software that you update is not actually from Electrum. It is from the bad guys, and once you load up that software, it goes and steals all your Bitcoin.
2: Right, and I'm looking at this heartbreaking message here. From somebody that said, I installed an old version of Electrum that I had saved from when I last accessed my wallet in 2017. When attempting to send funds, I was prompted to do a security update. Upon downloading and installing it, my entire balance of 1,400 Bitcoin was withdrawn to the scammer's address. That's a lot of money, Dave.
0: <laughs> it's $15.8 million. Right. Oh, man, that hurts. Yeah, this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So the article says that this technique has been around for a couple of years and the folks at Electrum have been trying to mitigate it. Recent versions of their software won't allow this to happen. I guess it's an issue with allowing HTML pop-ups within their software. So they've disallowed that. They've come up with a a disallowing list uh, for Electrum servers to block malicious servers on their network.
2: So they can find other malicious servers and tell the users about them.
0: Yeah, or just have them not pop up, you know, so they won't be automatically uh, connected to this Electrum web of computers. Yeah, I'm not... 100% 100% familiar
2: with the Electrum network or the Electrum wallet application. I've I've installed it and, and seen how it works and moved keys to it. But other than that, that's the limit of my experience.
0: I guess I'm wondering how would you prevent this? I guess keeping your software up to date, making sure that, but in this case, I, I proactively keeping your software up to date, but this came from inside the house, right? right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, no, you're, like you're 100% op- correct. Yeah, the the update notice came from inside the Electrum app itself. Uh, right. So you had every reason in the world to think that it was legit. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. Uh, I was going to say, you know, proactively, before you engage with the Electrum at all, go to their website, make sure you have downloaded the most recent version and run that. Right. Absolutely.
2: But the thing is, I'll bet this looked just like when you open Notepad++. It says, hey, there's a new package available. Would you like to download it? Right. It, it, that is a very common workflow in software.
0: I'll yeah. bet it looked exactly like that. Yeah, absolutely. I know myself, I don't think twice. If, if something from within the app pops up, an app that I've been using and trusting and... Right. Well, uh, I guess I'll think twice now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh
2: another, I'll go out to the Notepad++ uh, plus plus website and download my update. Thank you very much.
0: That is my story this week. Again, it's from ZDNet, and uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, my story this week comes from Ionat Elasku over at Bleeping
2: Computer, and I hope I'm saying the name right. Um, <laughs> and if not, I apologize in advance, as I often do. Uh, the story is about a company called Mitiga, that does incident response and other things. Hmm. And Mitiga invested an in incident at a US company where a business email compromise scam cost this company $15 million. Wow. And we don't know the name of the company, and that's probably because Mitiga doesn't discuss engagements like this. Ionut breaks this down into two phases, and there are actually, I think, more phases in this. First, the actors selected their company, right? Mm-hmm. This is a process in and of itself. It's called reconnaissance part of any hack or any breach that's gonna go down. These guys will target a company and they probably went through a lot of work to figure out which company they were gonna target and who they were gonna target in that company. And that Mm. process involves a lot of open source intelligence gathering and maybe even reaching out and and talking to these people under some pretext, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is just a lie that you tell people to get them to give you more information. Once they had selected their company, they spent about 2 weeks trying to gain access to email accounts in the victim company's system. Once they had that, and it's amazing that they were persistent. You think about all the scams we talk about, right? Where people are trying to just get access to like cloud email accounts. But this is actually somebody who's targeting you and they're going to be persistent. They're going to try every day, two or 3 times a day to get you to click on a link. And it took them two weeks, but eventually they got into somebody's email account. And once they were in there, they spent another week collecting information and identifying an opportunity. To ensure they stayed in the loop, the attackers set up forwarding rules that sent messages to another Microsoft 365 email address, and they had those email addresses with similar domains they had registered, right? So mm. we, we, we've seen this before, where like a .mil address will be spoofed by using the Molly top-level domain, which is .ml. You will put a C and an L next to each other. If you want to replace a D, you'll use a 1 instead of an L. These are common tricks because when you look at the URL quickly, it'll look like the actual URL that you're supposed to go to. And we've even talked about this in graphic design as well. The one that comes to mind is the Skirple pen. If you look up Skirple, S-K-E-R-P-L-E, that logo looks surprisingly like Sharpie. (laughs)
0: Right, 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 right. right, right.
2: It's very easy to fool the eye on these things. And that's what they are. They're knockoff Sharpie pens. But it's not hard to do it. And and it's really easy to fool people. Then while they were sitting there, they waited for the exact right time to strike. And when they struck, they took over a conversation using these fake domains and provided scam details for a money transfer. Hmm. Now, once this transfer had taken place, they knew they had to... Buy themselves some time because you can claw back these wire transfers. If you say, hey, this was a fraudulent wire transfer, that immediately puts a stop on it, right? And then the banks freeze the accounts and go, well, let's sort this out, right? Mm -hmm, And that's mm -hmm. the last thing scammers want is for somebody to sort something out, right? So, what they did was they took all the emails that came in regarding this transaction and sent it to a hidden folder on the victim's account. Hmm. And this kept this person unaware of the problem for two weeks. And that was enough time for them to totally move the money and get it out of the United States.
0: Wow. Yeah. My configuration of my own email. Right. And uh, I'm thinking, how often do I go and look at my forwarding rules? How often do I, you know, I'm I'm reminded of that line in uh, Shawshank Redemption, you know, how often do you look at another man's shoes? You know, like, it would be easy for someone to sneak something in there. and, And certainly be in there for a while before I noticed something was amiss. Absolutely.
2: Mitiga has some recommendations on how to protect yourself. And one of them is to block auto forwarding rules on your cloud email server or any email service, right? I really like this idea, not just to prevent scams, but there's a lot of information that gets sent around on email that can be proprietary. It can be regulatory. If you're a publicly traded company, like with Sarbanes-Oxley, you have to maintain all of your email records And Mm. if that email transaction goes off system, like if you have employees sending their email automatically to their own private Gmail or Yahoo address, you are actually suffering some form of a data breach every time they do that, I think. So Mm. there's a really good reason to not allow your employees to auto forward all the email that comes into their system off Mm -hmm. your system. Uh, Mm. Keep that stuff on your system, keep control of it. There are smart business reasons and regulatory reasons to do it. Uh, Another thing they say is block legacy protocols that can be used to circumvent multi-factor authentication these are things like pop and imap and use a uh, a more modern protocol for your email access the other thing of course enable alerts for suspicious activity and review controls for wire transfers. This is something, whenever you have a wire transfer, particularly a $15 million wire transfer, (laughs) there should be people on the phone going, hey, do you have the money? Did you get it? I'm going to send you the money now, and here's where I'm going to send it. This is $15 million. This is not chump change. (laughs) I am about to press
0: the button. (laughs) Right, exactly.
2: And I'm going to verbally verify to you the money, the the account that I'm going to send it to. Mm -hmm. And that could have prevented the entire issue
0: here. Wow.
2: $15 $15 million. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, that that could kill a company. That, it I mean, could. It was... Absolutely could kill a company. That's amazing. That's a big pile of money. Depends on what how big this company is. I get the impression that the company is pretty big, so maybe it won't kill them, but it's going to be damaging. $15 million is a lot of money. I hope they are insured for that money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing it points out is how is the professionalism. With which these scammers uh, are operating now—that—that you know—a fifteen million dollar payoff—that is totally worth their time to spend weeks or months or even years, absolutely, trying to do doing their homework to wait for just the right moment, uh, as they did in this case. It's quite a payday. All right, interesting story. Uh, And as always, we'll have a link in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave our catch
2: of the day comes from Reddit and Reddit user Kevin Rogers 94. he has a great conversation on some messaging platform I don't know somebody was trying to reach out to him to perform a gift card scam or a money transfer fee scam. you play the part of the scammer and I'll play the part of Kevin Rogers all right
0: hello how are you doing today (laughs) doing good you nice to hear back from you i'm doing just fine kicking back taking life one day at a time and how
2: is everyone doing okay so because dave's doing his great voice i should tell everybody that the picture that kevin is receiving is a very pretty young woman so let's continue everyone's doing good same old stuff just went kayaking with jeff on sunday Really happy to hear
0: from you. We're doing wonderful well. Do you receive any call or text from the CSBG? Do they contact you? Yes, they did. Oh really? Is the goal of the Community Services Block Grant help old youth and retire in society? Is the reduction of poverty for support COVID-19? Have you heard from them?
2: Yes, I did hear from them. You have got your
0: winning money package delivered to you
2: yet? Yep, I got my money package delivered yesterday. How much you won from the program? 50,000 credits. Really? Yes, really. You
0: should apply for it too. Have applied too, but I'm looking for money to pay my delivery fees. Can you help me out since you have got your deliver to you? They're making you
2: pay a delivery fee? I didn't have to pay a delivery fee. Maybe you should contact them about
0: that. That's what they asked from me before getting my winning package delivery to me! Can you assist me with $500? Then when I got the money delivered to me,
2: I will pay you back! But they didn't ask me for it. I think someone might be trying to scam you. Are you sure you applied to the correct program? Oh no! It's real and legit! Oh, okay. Well, you send me $50 for the transfer fee, and I'll send you the $500. i am really broke. I don't have any money. Please help me use the money getting gift cards, okay? Are you there? I only have 500 left because I spent the rest on nitrous oxide, so I can't pay for the transfer fee.
0: Okay. Help me use the $500 or $400 to purchase gift cards. I will be
2: glad if you can do this for me. Okay, but if I do this for you, then you have to do something for me. Okay, what do you want me to do in return? At exactly 8 p.m. tonight, I need you to hack into the security system of the National Archives Museum and shut it down. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. It has a map on the back of it that leads to treasure worth hundreds of millions of dollars. If you do this, I will send you the $500 tonight, and I will also split the treasure with you. What do you mean by that? I just told you I can't repeat it for security reasons. Mm, I can't do that for you, thanks. Can you do something else for me then? What's that? I've always thought you were beautiful and I'm pretty horny. (laughs) Can you send me a picture of your boobs? Send me the gift card and then I will show it to you, okay? No, I'm not stupid. Boobs first. Okay, hold on. Thanks. So you don't want the money? I already bought the gift cards, but I guess I can return them. Okay. (laughs) That's it. I think that's the end of the scam. (laughs) No boobs. If I can make one note to Kevin... If you have someone who's impersonating a woman, there's a good chance they have pictures of boobs. (laughs)
0: So <laughs> that's true that's well because that's not it's not exactly something that's hard to find on the internet right, right? exactly <laughs> oh gosh if only oh my my plan broke down because i where, couldn't find a, a picture on the internet <laughs>
2: right. where am i going to get a picture of this right oh <laughs> man oh gosh oh that's pretty funny the whole national treasures line is great <laughs> mm-hmm mm-hmm <laughs> breaking into the yeah, bank. I, I guess the scammer the hasn't seen that movie. No, they haven't. That's that's, that's <laughs> a good point because yeah. they, they didn't even catch on. They didn't even blink. What do you mean by that? No. They didn't go, okay, Nick, uh, I understand you're on to me. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: No, no, and this—I mean, you know—look, this scammer is probably in some sort of uh, call center and has a dozen different chat windows open at the same time, and absolutely it's just just bouncing between them. <laughs> uh, so that is exactly I, yeah, the, what's happening. Yeah, the best you can do is try to take up their time and slow them down. That's right. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Thank you, Kevin. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bill Harrod. He is the chief technology officer of the federal division of a company called Mobile Iron, a security company. And he has some expertise when it comes to election disinformation operations. And that was the focus of our conversation, certainly timely. (laughs) So here's my conversation
1: with Bill Harrod
0: from Mobile Iron.
1: We see so much disinformation. We tend to get somewhat numb. And I think we overlook or we miss a lot of it. I really think we go back to childhood, the Aesop's fable about the boy who cried wolf, I think is the first disinformation that we're exposed to. And the moral of the story, it really comes down to a lack of credibility and that we begin not to trust uh, what we hear. And I think that's become a real challenge. I don't think we've seen uh, as much overt disinformation as we might have thought six or nine months ago. And I think that the social media platforms and the media in general is trying to do a better job of identifying what is clearly false. But I think we begin to to overlook or just become desensitized to disinformation.
0: You know, I I have to say personally that I find, I think like a lot of people, I, I've found the past, I don't know, a couple of years, but certainly as we get closer to the election, to be kind of exhausting when it comes to this sort of thing, because uh, you just don't know what to believe. I like to think of myself as a, an appropriately skeptical person. I look at things and try to analyze them and, and use logic to figure out, uh, you know, if something might be true or not. But It just feels like we're being bombarded from so many sides right now. I I think to your point, it's really easy to throw your hands up and say, I'm out of here. I just don't know what to make of things.
1: I think that's absolutely right, Dave. And I think we do see a lot of fatigue around the messaging so that we don't really know what to believe or how much veracity to put in what we're being told or what we hear. And we've become so tribalized, so divided that confirmational bias begins to just become the sound chamber in which people live, right? So if you're watching some news network versus another news network, then basically you're hearing what you expect to hear, and we do become exhausted from the messaging, and we get fatigued, and it's hard to know what is true and important versus what is the spin.
0: Have you all seen any evidence that the bad guys, the scammers out there, are taking advantage of this mental state that so many of us find ourselves
1: in? What we do see at, at Mobile Iron, we see a lot of attempts to capitalize on uh, whatever is in the news and whatever is being sensationalized as a way of becoming either a part of the scam or as a way of getting people to click on a link or uh, scan a a malicious QR code, and the results can be quite devastating if people don't have the appropriate security controls to to detect malicious code and have ways of anti phishing detection or or mitigating those uh, those sorts of attacks. We do see a lot of scams. It started with some of the early COVID scams and has now become a part of the email barrage that people see around sensational headlines, particularly relating to the election.
0: Do you have any advice or tips for folks to to kind of combat this? I mean, if you see this sort of thing spreading, how can you do your part
1: to try to nip it? Because of how widespread and how fast the attacks replicate, it's hard to get in front of them once they're out and and detected and it's really hard for individuals to be able to identify what is suspicious or malicious until after they've already clicked on it or gone to the link and so i think what we see is the ways to avoid it the ways to combat it really are to have some effective controls on your devices to have something with a malicious threat detection and an anti-phishing capability on the device and then to be able to provide some feedback both to the platform on which it has come from. So whether it be one of the social media platforms or to be able to send out a note to people that you're aware of and say, look, I've I've seen this. It is uh, particularly risky. Don't click on this. It's not a high value protection, but it does help. And I think we saw that particularly with some of the ransomware attacks where information sharing communities, the ISACs, for example, they do have notifications that go out and say, this is the indicators of threat. This is what to look out for. And this is what the, the ransomware payload um, may come disguised as.
0: You know, as we look farther out, you know, past this year's round of elections, do you have any sense for how we might do a better job of getting these
1: sorts of things under control? Just where do we need to head? Um, So I think what we're gonna find is that more and more, there is a need for people to have the ability to know what is safe and what is true. And whether that is coming back to um, trusted media, you know, large media organizations and the fact checkers, or whether it's looking at more elaborate quarantining of email coming in and having people then select what they're actually gonna look at um, rather than uh, have so much of it dump into their email inbox and have people scroll through it and select something that may be malicious um, without really considering it. So I think those are some things. I think a widespread integration of a platform with some Anti-phishing in particular, phishing has been one of the most significant attack vectors that we have seen, particularly since the COVID pandemic started and everybody went to uh, to telework. The phishing schemes have become quite sophisticated and quite frequent.
0: How much of this do you suppose rests on the the platform providers? You know, the, the Facebooks of the world, the YouTubes, Twitters, who are, you know, their algorithms are guiding people towards things do they bear some of the responsibility here
1: well absolutely i think dave so they bear some of the responsibility i think they are guiding some of it and i think they are uh, not detecting a lot of it they obviously are in a position where uh, they need to both make money and provide a service and and sometimes those things run counter to each other. So I think Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, some of the other social media platforms can do a better job of screening and detecting and being proactive about pulling information. I have heard that just in the last couple of days, as uh, there's been more scrutiny on the monopolistic practices of some of the platforms, that some of the platforms are beginning to take more action Um, against known disinformation campaigns or disinformation providers. Um, So we see things like Facebook is taking down more QAnon accounts and Twitter is being more selective in uh, what they allow or don't allow and, and in pulling tweets down. So I think they do take uh, some responsibility. I think some of the, the net vendors can also provide some assistance in this, right? So if we think of the the infrastructure providers, AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile, that they could provide some capability to, to filter some of that as well.
0: Yeah, I want to try to, to sort of bring it home for everyone, because I, I often think about as one of the people in my my own family who has uh, i guess an above average understanding of a lot of this and certainly engagement with all of this i try to imagine you know sitting around the dinner table with my my parents my children you know my loved ones and trying to give them the information they need to be informed when it comes to these sorts of things and i wonder from that from that point of view in terms of you know protecting our our friends and family our loved ones Do you have any advice there?
1: So, Dave, I think you probably have a significant level of understanding on much of this and are probably smarter for for most of it than, than many people are. And I think it is a challenge to be able to say to somebody, you know, be aware of this, look out for that. There are real challenges. I think QR codes is something that we are seeing become a significant threat vector and something that you can't look at and know whether it's safe or not. You can scan a QR code and if it's malicious, uh, it can write and send an email or place a phone call from your device or or even uh, initiate a payment um, many times without your ever being aware of it. So I think QR codes are something that, that you, we can talk to uh, our loved ones about being careful about where the QR code comes from and uh, and making sure that it is a uh, a safe and reliable source for the QR code. Obviously, the thing that we go back to is something that we have talked about for years, and that is if you you get an email and the link sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. And then the phishing attempts, you know? So if, uh, again, it comes back to good understanding and good hygiene, right? Don't give up personal information, don't give up Uh, account or password or financial or or personal data. All right, Joe, what do you think? That was a good interview. I I like hearing what Bill had to say. One of the things
2: that he said early on that struck me was we have become desensitized to disinformation. Mm. And you were telling Bill how you are fatigued. I will tell you, I am also fatigued. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of this, Dave. <laughs> <It's>,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. I mean, right. we are uh, collectively, aren't we all? <laughs> we just want to return to some sort of sense of normalcy. <laughs> yes. One of
2: the biggest parts of this problem is that we have become very tribalized, and the confirmation bias that we seek in our news is a huge problem. And it's hard for us to know what's true anymore particularly Mm. because of that confirmation bias. And Bill does a really good job of telling people what is going to happen to you on social media. You're going to wind up in this echo chamber. You're going to wind up ideologically isolated. You're not going to hear opposing viewpoints. That only leads to essentially radicalization. Mm. I think it's a dangerous situation. This is why I always harp and say, don't get your political news from Facebook or Twitter. Right. These attacks, uh, he says they do move very quickly and They're difficult to identify. And by the time you do identify them, it's too late. This is how they work. They're very temporary. We talked a couple of weeks ago about a disinformation organization on Facebook that got taken down. That organization was up for a year Finding these inauthentic accounts is difficult for the social networks to do. It might be easier for Twitter to do it because they can spot like big rises in bot accounts. But Facebook, it's a lot more difficult, I think.
0: I sound like a broken record, but my response to this is if you say, well, we can't shut this stuff down at the scale we're operating. My response is, well, maybe then you shouldn't be operating at that scale.
2: Right. And I agree. I don't think that Facebook and Twitter are doing a good job with disinformation. And that's exactly what your point is interesting that Bill is talking about how the QR codes attacks are becoming more prevalent.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: This is, uh, again, I I recommend getting a QR code proofreader, essentially. There's little apps you can get on your phone that tell you whether or not the QR code is is malicious or not before you go to it. Don't just scan a QR code with your camera. You, you have no idea what that's going to do.
0: Right. <laughs> you need to pre-detonate it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: So yeah. when you hear that little Glad I didn't didn't run that on my camera.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, again, our thanks to Bill Harrod from Mobile Iron for joining us. Uh, We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. the Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.